This is CliffCentral.com. So when that recruiter called, I said, are you sure you have the right number? <laughs> okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't convinced he has the right Tanya uh, on the line. And he said, no, we, we, the organization is looking for someone to bring an outside-in perspective. So I knew about business. I knew about running businesses. I've run various divisions within the environment that I was, but I had no idea or expertise in private equity or venture capital and I, and I think that speaks to a little bit about who I am. I like to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the voice of Tanya van Leel, CEO of the Southern African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. And when I came to understand just a little of her story, I realized I had to meet her. Tanya is, by many measures, a highly successful individual. She's a South African powerlifting champion. She has multiple qualifications, including an MBA. And she also successfully moved into the role of CEO in an industry that she didn't really know all that much about. It makes me feel a little dizzy just thinking about what it would take to do all of that. I wanted to find out how. What makes her so different? Why is she able to do what others seemingly can't? And in the face of difficult early circumstances, how did she manage to make it as far as she has? As many of you listening will know from our other interviews and conversations, the winning magic these individuals seem to command often has its beginnings in decisions made early on in life. As we were discussing, it became clear that Tanya's early experiences and decisions definitely had an impact. We then go on to discuss the unfolding of her career and some of the challenges she faced moving through various positions. But I wanted to get to the magic, the magic dust. What was it? How does Tanya seem to be able to go from success to success? I won't take the thrill of discovery away from you, but will share that Tanya's ability to do so comes down to just four or five things that you will hear as you listen to this interesting conversation. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and this is our future CEO's Meet the CEO feature. I actually grew up being a tomboy. Having my nails done, having my hair done, looking like a lady is hard work for me. It doesn't okay. come natural. I'm a tomboy at heart, and I grew up that way. I grew up playing in outside, doing cartwheels, climbing trees, giving my mother gray hairs because I would just disappear into the streets with my BMX, and she had no oh, idea yeah. where I was. So I'm very much a tomboy at heart, and I think it's my love for adrenaline and my love for trying new things that is giving me this life that I'm living. When I was thinking about introducing you and how I was going to introduce you today on the show, the other way that I was going to introduce you is you're a hundred percenter. Is that accurate? Because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do many of these things. So I think one of the things I'm good at is prioritizing. Mm. So when do I give 100% or maybe just give 80% to, let's say, doing an MBA instead of giving 100%? So knowing when to give 100% and when to maybe step back a bit. Mm. And it's finding that rhythm, I think, that has helped me do some of the things that I do. The only thing is that, I mean, if I reflect on my life or, so, or the lives of other friends of mine or associates and colleagues, we, we can't all deadlift 145 kilograms or <laughs> we don't do many of the things that you've been able to do. You've been able to, to fit it all in. How do you balance it? I, I know you're talking about prioritizing, but there's also only so many hours in a day. And there's only so much energy we really have. And that's physical energy, mental energy, emotional, maybe spiritual as well. Do you just have more than the rest of us? I think I try and, and divvy up my time. So this is hard work time. This is play time. This is learning time. So I, I think I sort of compartmentalize my time and know that 
because let's say Monday is a hard work day, Tuesday is going to be a hard training day. So mm. I think I try and use my energy in different ways and I, I'm a planner. So okay. it seems like I'm, uh, I'll, I just jump at things, but I actually plan ahead. So mm. I know what my week is going to be like. So I try and manage my energy. So if I need a lot more energy, let's say to deadlift 145 kilos on the Friday, I'll manage my energy building up to that. So you are very strategic in your approach to the way that you actually live. I think I'm hearing our audience say, but that can even be exhausting in and of itself. Over planning or planning to make a plan and how do you get it right? So you can only plan that much, but mm. then you have to give your time, yourself freedom not to plan. Let's say you'll go on a holiday and you'll say we're doing a drive through to Cape Town, but you don't plan it. Mm. You just make it happen. So some of sometimes, as I say, you need to know when to give 100 and when to let go. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself insane. Mm. So there are times where you just need to say, mm, take a step back. There's been enough planning. This weekend, I'm not planning a thing. I'm just going to take it as it is. The only thing I'm planning is to doing is waking up on Saturday, and then I'm going to take where the tide takes me, it takes me. What I think we mustn't then allow ourselves to do is think that you're this rigid individual that every minute of every day is planned. Rather, it's, uh, it's fairly loose um, where it needs to be. It's important that you get to know yourself and what you can and can't do. Okay, so we're learning a little bit about you. Let's pull back the years. Let, let's go back to the younger you. You spoke about your mother worrying sick because you're on your BMX all, all over the place, all over the neighborhood. That was part of the early development of you. Mm, so I grew up in a, I would say, normal average family. Neither of my parents had matric. So they both started working directly after school. Okay. My mom then became a housewife uh, when I was born. So I, I always grew up knowing my dad would work and my mom would stay at home. That's the household I grew up in. Mm. We were never wealthy. We got our clothes in December when my dad got bonus from sure. Pep and Ackermans. Yep. So, <laughs> so that's the kind of uh, environment I grew up in. But we never wanted for anything. Mm. So we were comfortable. But I always had this sense of... I want more, I want more. So whether it was in sports or whether it was in school, I wanted to be in the A-team or I wanted to be in the top 10 academically. And it's not because my parents pushed me. Mm. It's just this need that I had to always push myself and do better. Do you, do you know where that comes from? I, I actually, I don't know where that comes from. And it was something I, I actually thought about doing a doctorate at one stage. Is okay. that, that kind of drive. Is it because there, are, there might be things that have happened that shapes that? But is it that innate or is it because of your environment that has mm. shaped you? There were things in my, um, while I was growing up, that weren't great. I mean, mm. everyone's got these stories to tell about when they grew up. There are things that happened that weren't great. Sure. But what I realized is that I never wanted to be dependent on a man. Okay. Um, my, my wife is fiercely independent <laughs> as well, so I understand. I, I always got the sense that my mom sort of felt stuck in a way, being a housewife, hardly had any work experience, there was no alternative of options for her. And mm. I never wanted to be that. I wanted to be independent and I wanted to have options and I wanted to just be out there and be the best version of me that I can and not feel that I'm stuck. Then you begin to move into an educational experience, an educational environment. Were you naturally an academic? So I was always a bit of a little bit of a brainiac um, okay. in terms of always had good marks, good grades. But that is, that's because you work hard? Th yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> also, I think I, I 
I've better down how I learn and how I best learn. Okay, so, very interesting. So you knew how to learn rather than just this idea of, you know, learning by osmosis that just kind of moved into your brain. Yes. So, okay, you've, you've, so I think one of my skills is that I learn fast because I know how I, my brain works mm. and how my body works. Excellent. So I learn fast. So it's not just hard work. Sometimes I had more fun than, than working hard. Mm. But in terms of the educational space, so I always wanted to live overseas and work overseas and that was the dream but i fell pregnant after matric okay so i had to grow up very quickly yes there's a certain responsibility that happens in that kind of uh, moment yes. exactly and i i always wanted to go and study further and i wanted to experience that student life mm. but my dad was an entrepreneur and the six months before my matric year ended so halfway through my matric year he's business was bankrupt. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Even my matric farewell dress was a little bit of a copy and paste mm. of putting that together. So my dad's business went bankrupt. So I actually experienced the life of an entrepreneur and how difficult it can be. So there was no money for me to go and study. Mm. Uh, any money that I thought he had, we needed to plow back into our family because it was a one-man show. He was liable for all that debt of the business. Mm. and So there was no money for me to study. I started working as a temp earning I think a thousand two hundred rand a month. Wow. Okay. That paid for me to get there and get back. Mm. But just after Matrek fell pregnant, I had to grow up very quickly. And when my son was born, I think that was a turning point for me. That was a point where I realized no one else is gonna make it better for me. I have to do this. I did get married. I realized I needed to do more, I needed to study, I needed to work harder to give a better life for my son. Well, it's interesting that you talk about a turning point that occurred. Alan Not Craig Jr., the, the, the son of Vodacom's famous founder, he, he says, and he says it quite adamantly, that we should get married young. Why? Because it urges us to move into a phase where we are actively and I guess again urgently taking responsibility for our lives and pushing the, the accelerator and pushing the needle, needle a little bit. The idea of getting married early is not, I, mean, I know sometimes socially people look at it and say, hmm, but actually there's a real opportunity that exists if you do that kind of thing. It is, it is. It was an opportunity for me to be so responsible and I think that sort of catapulted me into studying while I was working. So I did my first degree while working at an IT company. Mm. I thought I was an IT nerd. Okay. So I did a BCom in information systems. I loved the, the business side of it, but not the programming and networking mm. and all of it that came with it. So I finished it, but realized mm, IT is not for me. But through that process, I actually started teaching other people in the company that I worked for on using the systems. Okay, interesting. So even though you didn't enjoy it, you still had the discipline to finish, number one. But then the second part is that you were teaching in spite of not enjoying it. That's a that's an interesting situation. And then, I, and I think that's when my boss at the time realized that I can take difficult, complex information, mm. break it down into bits and pieces so that other people can understand it. And I think that's what um, catapulted me into the training and learning and development environment. And then my career in terms of learning and development just took off from there. You were heading up, I mean, there's a number of steps in between, but you were heading up the executive education at Gibbs for a while. Yeah, so just before Gibbs, I 
was at Standard Bank Learning and Development Department, and that really taught me the ins and outs of learning and development. There's a lot of people that have worked at Standard Bank Learning and Development that are now working in so many organizations. It was a wonderful platform to learn about how people learn, mm. how to put training and programs together, and that led me to Gibbs. Um, I was there for almost 10 years. I did various positions there, but the last two was heading up um, open programs or executive education, mm. and the last two years um, of my span at Gibbs was heading up academic programs. Mm. It, it was uh, the MBA and all the other academic programs that fit within that portfolio. Do you think that your understanding of how you learn was an enabler when it comes to teaching others, do you think it made you sensitive to their view of learning or did you potentially, at least initially, dogmatically try and force your mode of learning onto others? No, I think the fact that I knew that the way I learned was different from some of my friends. Mm. I realized early on that these people learn differently. Even my brother and I are very different in terms of our personalities, how we learn. We're three years apart, but I could see how different he was. And the, the methods my mom tried with him, she had to try different methods because he just was not interested in school at all. He was the sports mm. the, His favorite time at school was break. Mm. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the fact that I knew that people learn differently and I learned that early on helped me in the learning and development environment. When education is delivered in a particular kind of way and you understand how you learn, but it's not being delivered that way, how did you adjust that and then mold it to your way of learning? What I did is that I would pay attention in class. I think that's the fundamentals, okay. is, is pay attention in class. Because uh, that's like half of the work done already, if you just do that. But then it's going back and in your own time, do what works for you. For some people, it's um, engaging in groups. For others, it's talking to themselves. For others, it's making all these summaries or these long mm. essays that they write for themselves. So I think it's about taking that and then trying a few things and, and what works for you. For me, it was walking around in my room, pretending I'm the teacher mm. and teaching others about the subject. Are you familiar with the Feynman mm -mm. technique? Feynman was an award-winning, brilliant physicist come genius. And what he would share is that the way that he would learn and the way that he came to understand the world is through two different things. First, he would use a lot of examples and analogies, so he'd contextualize. He would use a person's previous understanding to build understanding in a particular topic. But then the second thing that he would do is he would teach it. Do you still do that kind of thing today? Did it continue all the way through and serve you all the way through to matric and beyond? It definitely did. So, uh, let's take the MBA, for instance. I would uh, talk to my son okay. <laughs> about okay. some of the things we've learned. Interesting. He wouldn't have a clue, but I'd explain it to him, and I'd try to re-explain it to him in a way that he understands mm. it, and I'd use practical or real examples. Mm. And then by the time he gets it, then I know I've landed it. Um, I'm, I've got it. But I think the thing that also helped me is uh, I sort of have my own way of approaching an exam. Okay. I, I hate assignments. I really hate them. If they're not practical or if they're not project-based, I really despise assignments. But I love exams, specifically case study exams or or those kinds of exams that really… Yeah, just some, some real-world practicality. Exactly. Because mm. for me, you need to bring it back to what you're doing and why you're doing it, not just for the sake of asking people what's one plus mm. one. So… 
My exam technique is use your time appropriately. Again, we come to planning and time, and I sound very rigid, but mm. I use the law of diminishing returns when I when I tackle an exam. Yeah, great so way to do it, yeah. If you have 180 minutes to tackle a 100-mark um, exam, you've got so many minutes per mark, allocate that. Um, so if it's a 20-mark uh, question, how many minutes do I have for that? Tackle that question. If your time is up, give yourself another minute or two, but move on to the next question because you're not going to get more marks. Mm. You're just going to continue waffling. Mm. Get to the next question. And I've tackled all my exams that way, and I can see the annoyance on the faces of the people when I stand up 20 minutes before the exam and I'm done. Oh, it's her again. Damn it. <laughs> okay, I was one of those people. <laughs> Stressing until the, the bitter end. And it's not because I want to stress them out or I want to win or anything like that. It's just like, I just want to get this over with. Mm. And because afterwards, I know I'm going to have a beer and I'm going to smile and it's going to be great. Yeah. It makes me think of the quote, and maybe it's Abraham Lincoln that said it. Uh, we'll never know. So I think he said, if you give me four hours to cut down a tree, I'm going to spend the first three sharpening the axe. Planning is so very important. And there's an alliteration I heard once, which is perfect planning precedes perfect performance. Does that sound okay? You're smiling yes. wildly. <laughs> I, think, I think it's um, appreciation. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so let's then, let's then move the conversation a little bit. I, I, you receive a phone call. At that point, you're heading up academic programs at Gibbs. You receive a phone call, uh, and then what's going through your head? So I receive a phone call. I make sure they've got the right number. I first say no. Uh, he insists. You did say no. I said no. Interesting. I said no. Uh, I've got some opportunities at Gibbs. I love Gibbs. I love the brand. I've carved out a great career here. I, I don't, I'm not actually in the market. I wasn't in the market. Mm. He found my details on LinkedIn. I uh, said Please, just a 10-minute conversation with the current CEO. And if after that conversation you're still not interested, I'll leave you alone. Okay. And this was at the end of November 2016. Mm. And, you know, at this time of year, you don't want to receive those kinds of calls. You're busy winding down. You're planning your December. You just don't want to tackle new things. Mm. So I said, okay, great. So the CEO of SAFCA, the previous CEO, Erica, gave me a call. And what was what started as a 10-minute informal conversation ended up being an hour and a half interview oh wow but she was a journalist so okay. she had that knack mm. but after that phone call there was something um in the way she spoke about what she did and about the organization and about the industry that just sparked my interest mm. so i phoned the recruiter back and i said okay great i'll go for the first interview just to see what it's about and I started reading about private equity and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm in over my head. I have no idea mm. what this is. I asked a few people around at the business school, what's private equity? And I got these blank stares. And I went for the first interview and I really resonated with the board members that interviewed me. Okay. It's, I think it, it has something to do with the culture of the industry, but I really resonated with them. Went through more interviews. They, they're really thorough in terms mm. of, of wanting to find the right person or the right fit for the organization, went for these elaborate psychometrics to see the kind of personality I am, my decision making, how do I make decisions, all of that. And then I went for my last interview. But two days before my last interview, I got a phone call from the recruiter saying, it's not just the last interview. They want you to come up with a marketing strategy for the business. Oh, interesting. And at that stage, we were finalizing the MBA cohort for the following year, mm. the graduation. There was just so much going on. Yeah, that's on. an intense time. Yes. 
So I phoned him and I said, okay, I'm out. I'm sorry. Uh, I have to focus on my current job. I can't be chasing this position. Um, so sorry, I'm out of the process. Tell them, thank you so much. It was wonderful, but I'm out. Mm. And he says, are you sure? I'm like, I'm out. In spite of your good experiences? Yes. Because at that stage, remember that thing about where I said you have to decide when mm. to let go and mm. when to tackle something. And I just thought, you know what? This is not for me. And directly after I phoned him, two of my meetings got cancelled. Um, people moved it to the following week. And I thought, okay, I've got two hours. Let me see what I can pull together. In two hours, yeah. Interesting. So in two hours, I quickly pulled the marketing strategy together. Very rough draft, colors. Uh, it's like a mind map. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just put a mind map together. So I phoned him back. Can, can I just interject here mm. very quickly? I think if you can't do it in two hours... If you can't pull it together, then that is a surefire sign that maybe it's it's not necessarily beyond you, but it's not quite what you should be doing. Is that is that a nice litmus test? Yes, I think it might be. It might be. So, and I pulled it together. I phoned him and I said, "You know what? I've got something." Did you tell them I'm out of the race? He said, no, I knew you were going to phone me back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Interesting. So I said, okay, I've got something. Uh, I'm ready for the interview. So I went for the last interview. I, even, I didn't do a presentation or anything fancy. I told them it was last minute. I gave them my very rough draft, colorful page. I said, this is my recommendation. We did a great interview. And... You know, at the end of an interview, they ask you, do you have any questions? Mm. So I said, I only have one question. Is there anything that still concerns you about my ability to do this job? Let's, let's tackle it here. Yeah, great question. And um, they asked a few questions. I answered it. And an hour later, I got the call to say, congratulations, you got the job. Very nice. So that, that was in the first or the end of Jan. Mm. So that's how I started my 2017. And then, and then appointment comes only later in June or July, is that correct? Uh, in March. In March. Okay, I beg your pardon. Hmm. So, but I got invited to the first board meeting a week later. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so I did so much reading before then, but I was out of my depth. But I think the lesson I learned with that is that you always have experience and, and skills that you bring to your position. Mm. You don't have to be the subject matter expert, but you have to be curious so you have to be curious and vulnerable to ask questions. Mm. Yeah, and you mustn't allow ego to get in the way. I mean, how often does that happen where you, you pretend to know, but actually you, just, you end up looking a bit, a bit foolish? Foolish. Yeah. So one of the best pieces of advice I got was if you go into a new environment or a new position, you have license to ask. Mm. Not license to kill, but license to ask. Yep. And I used each and every opportunity to ask and to make notes. And even in meetings, they'll be terminology that I had no idea what it meant, but I'd write it down. And then afterwards, I'd either Google or I'd ask someone exactly what does that mean? How does it fit in? Mm. So I was just curious. And I think my curiosity sometimes annoys people because I can ask 20 questions mm. in a space of five minutes. But I think my curiosity helped me in this position. I like the, the lessons that come out of what you've just shared about asking questions. You've spoken about a cringeworthy thing that happened um, early in your career. What, what mistake did you make just out of pure naivety early on as a CEO? Not as a CEO, but um, one of my previous jobs was trusting someone too quickly. Okay, interesting. I innate believe people are good people. Uh, I trusted someone too quickly and they disappointed me. When you say trust too quickly, what does that actually mean? What, what does it mean to trust and what does it mean to trust too quickly? 
So I think I, I trusted the facade of the personality that they try to bring across. Okay, so you saw an outer layer. I saw an outer layer and I didn't see through the real person. Okay, and, and I thought I have that intuition and my intuition let me down. Mm. And so I was upset with myself that I didn't see through that layer. What could you have done to have seen through that layer? Because some people are quite sophisticated in the facade that they present, not because they necessarily have ill intent, but just sometimes because it is the way it is. How, how would you pierce the veneer or the facade uh, if you're looking back now? So what, what I do now is I, I question even more, but okay. I, I also look at what they say and what they do. Mm. Um, I don't interrogate. I don't want to say like I'm an FBI interrogator, but I, I really look for signs of conflict between what they say and what they do. What you do speak so loudly, I can barely hear the words that you're saying. That's what I'm, I'm hearing come mm. through here, that little quote. Uh, okay, so, so you, you look for inconsistencies or consistencies, and that allows trust. How long would you then give yourself to develop real trust? Because once burned can often poison the rest of your relationships. So how did you navigate mm. that then? There was a period where actually it was difficult for me to, to trust people again. I would say it took me about a year or so. Oh, really? A year? Mm, interesting. The, yes, it took me about a year or so to actually just come to terms with the fact that it's a lesson learned. It might even happen again. You can try and prevent it. But now I would say I give two to three months. Okay. In engagements with people before I really make my mind up about them. So I don't jump to conclusions that they are trustworthy or non-trustworthy. I give it two to three months. It's so like just let it play out. Let it play out, courting a relationship mm. and just see what happens. Okay, very interesting. Your three pillars of CEO leadership as you currently see them, because they're going to evolve over time. What are your three pillars of CEO leadership? Listen, reflect and make decisions. Make decisions. Okay, the worst advice you've ever received. <laughs> the worst advice. And don't, well, you can. If you really want to, you can name and shame. <laughs> but the worst advice you've ever received. Oh, you have to read a business book every week. Oh, really? Okay. There's, there's not time for that. Um, if you really want to live your life and have fun, you can't force yourself to read a business book every week. I tried it for a month and I gave up. I appreciate research and I appreciate academics, but heck, there's uh, sometimes you just got to roll up your sleeves and do it. You can't rely on this theoretical view of everything. Maybe maybe that's part of your frustration. And it, I think it's good to be open-minded and read these business books, but don't take it as your Bible. Mm. Um, take from it that you can, and that's in context with where you are and what you're busy doing. Don't try and strive and, and be someone that you're not. So one of the pieces of advice um, the previous Dean of Gibbs, Nick Benadel, always gives is learn from everyone, copy no one. Mm. And that was a piece of advice that really sticks with me. It's like be open-minded, learn from everyone, read these business books when you can and um, the ones that people say this should be on your list. But, but don't make it your be-all and end-all. Mm. Um, there might be one thing or one lesson or one chapter that's interesting. But so many people say... I follow good to great or seven habits of highly effective people that, you know, be open to other perspectives. Well, you have to be, especially in a, in a fast changing, quite dramatically changing world as well. So I absolutely agree with you. Here's an interesting question. How are you different to anyone else? I mean, why are you more qualified than anyone else to be the CEO of Savka right now? That's a tough question. It is a tough question because you you want to be humble, 
but you also want to be able to show that there's a distinct difference between you and other people, but you still want to remain humble. <laughs> Don't be humble. Why are you different? Hmm. I think because I, um, I like to be thrown in the deep end and okay. doing something that I'm very unfamiliar with, but coupling that with something that I, re that I know and just being able to put those two together and, and run an association that represents a big industry and um, doing it with a little bit of flair. What I'm hearing you say is that there's a certain challenge that you embrace, and it seems like you've been embracing challenge for, I mean, in various parts of your life for a very long time, which is fantastic. Uh, and then finally, finally, a last question from me and for our future CEOs who are actually asking the questions. If you could go back in time and speak to the, the young 20, 21-year-old future CEO you, what is that one thing you would say to yourself? It's, it's not just about the end, it's about the journey. So enjoy the journey you're going through. Don't just gun for that position or that corner office or that car or that house, but really enjoy the journey you're going through and learn through every step. Think about everything that you're taking in that step because everything happens for a purpose and a reason and you can learn from each and every situation. Are you saying that you potentially haven't enjoyed moments in your career, in your life, because you were just pushing for a target, for an end game rather than, than the journey? Is that, is that acceptable? It is. It, at times I could have just stopped and smelled the roses instead of pushing, pushing, pushing. So there are times where I could have slowed down a bit and just enjoy the environment that I was in rather than thinking about the next thing because it, it's tiring. Mm. So sometimes just enjoy where you are and what you do before you think about the next step. How do you enjoy it? Uh, I, and I'm asking the question because I sometimes struggle to do this. Uh, how do you actually stop and enjoy something? So I think I've, I've only, I haven't mastered it, but it's, it's only been the last, I would say, four years or five years or so where I've been kinder to myself and allowed myself to do things that I enjoy and love instead of just pushing work-wise. Mm. And that's where I was saying about the buckets. So do things about this is networking time um, or building relationship time. This is fun me, just about me, no one else. Just about doing something that I enjoy and selfishly doing something that you enjoy. Yeah, well, guilt-free, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, and don't be so hard on yourself. We're so hard on ourselves. Mm. I think people with certain kinds of expectations are often quite hard on themselves. Tanya, thank you so much, very much for a very interesting conversation. You have shared and revealed a great deal, and I know that our future CEOs community have um, benefited greatly from this conversation. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you so much. That is the voice of Tanya van Leel, the CEO of SAVCA, the Southern African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. We'll see you same time, same place next week. More CEOs, more executives, more entrepreneurs. And look out for our most recent Ask an Expert feature about procrastination. That's going to be an interesting conversation to listen to. All right. We'll see you soon. This is CliffCentral.com.